Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're entering a season where a unity of purpose can lead to the glory of one shining moment. But what comes after that moment? And if it's not enough, then what is? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Glory of Christ with this sermon entitled The Glory of Christ and the Church, which covers John chapter 17 verses 9 to 11 and 20 to 26. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray and let's see where God's leading us in God's word this morning. Let's, let's go to him. Father, thank you for the ways in which you are leading our church. Lord, we, we trust you and we love you. We thank you for the ways in which you meet us each and every day, that your Holy Spirit presses deep into our hearts the truth of your word. And we pray that this morning that that would happen in abundance. Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts. And as we pray often, would you give us eyes to see the beauty of you? Oh Christ, we give this time to you. Would you use it all for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing in our Glory of Christ series, and as we've walked through different aspects of what is it that we're talking about when the scriptures talk about the glory of Christ, this morning we're gonna be continuing in John chapter 17, which is where we were last week, and really zooming in on some key things that Jesus was praying about for us. We'll talk about that in a moment. But to set us up, to lead us there, uh, I'll first read a couple of quotes to you. Very short, brief quotes. First one says this, unrealized potential is the default, not the exception. Unrealized potential is the default, not uh, the default, not the exception. Another one that I read this week says frustration is potential unrealized. So I wanna zoom in on those two words, unrealized potential. When I think about the church, I think, man, there's some unrealized potential in what God wants to do and longs to do, and even all the way back when Jesus was praying this prayer for us in John chapter 17, what he was praying would be true. Now, when I think about Perimeter Church, When I think about what God has done here for almost 43 years in and through this church, uh, you could make the argument that in some ways, in many ways, we have had an over-realized potential. Uh, He has been abundantly good to this body, to this church family, in the ways in which he has grown it, certainly numerically, but in the ways in which he has grown it, in what we would say, uh, by his grace, and his power in a very healthy way, centered on discipleship, life on life, missional discipleship, where we're going deep with one another, we're starting small, we're, we're thinking big, but we're one life at a time, pressing in the fundamental, glorious truths of what it means to follow Jesus, and that we are seeking to establish mature and equipped followers of Christ who will turn around and give out, give away what's being built inside of us through Uh, God's Holy Spirit in that process of discipleship. So God's done a tremendous work in this church that I could spend the rest of this sermon talking about. But I also think this, I think that God is giving us an opportunity, an incredible opportunity in what I see ahead of us uh, that you might say, hey, here's some unrealized potential for the church going forward. 
And it would basically boil down to this. It would basically boil down to, uh, unlike, unlike never before, like never before, and that's a, that's a drastic statement in the sense of like, I, never, what a huge word, at least in my lifetime. There hasn't been an opportunity for the church to step into a reality where people are filled, filled with anticipation and expectation for something better, for longing for something that would come, that would be available, that would give meaning and purpose and value. Because of the circumstances and situations of the last 12 months, uh, the, the world around us is chocked full of people who are clamoring, who are longing, who are desperate for something significant. And you could, you could wrap it all up in saying this. There's three things that all human desire ultimately ends in, in my opinion. Three things that human desire ultimately ends in that we long for. First is we long for, we clamor for glory. That there would be something that in the, in the way of glory, in the way of weightiness, in the way of significance, in the way of splendor and majesty and meaning that would be able to be experienced by humans that would actually last, that would actually have substance to it. The second one is unity. You look at the world around us right now, it's clamoring for unity and it's coming up with all kinds of ways to bring about what the world might say, those who aren't in the church, and say this is unity. The last one is love. All of us long to know love, to be loved, to express love, and to have a love experience in our hearts and in our lives unlike anything that we could dream of. All of human desire boils down to those three things. And so what do we observe in human nature? We observe an endless, exhausting chase after those three things, after glory, after unity, and after love. What are we gonna see in John chapter 17? We're gonna see Jesus pray. And we started this last week in the first five verses, we'll continue it this week, but we're gonna see Jesus pray about those three things. As he's thinking about his followers, first he's gonna pray for the disciples, then he's gonna pray for all who would believe according to their message, so that's us. Every single person through the generations that will believe because of the apostles' establishment of the church through the power of Christ in them. He's gonna pray about that the church would be the very place, not so much places in geographic location, although that's a part of it, but the very place where the people of God, both gathered and scattered, would take into the world a reality of glory, unity, and love that's unlike anything that we know, that is uniquely and supremely other. And it's all because of Jesus. Here's the main idea of this, of this morning. The main idea that I want you to take away is this. The potential of the church, the potential of the church begins to be realized when the members of the church believe and live out John chapter 17. Now, I realize that's a big statement. You're saying all, everything is contained in this one chapter, 
And we would say, no, it's the whole of scripture. But there's so much packed into this chapter that we would do well as God's people. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've believed by uh, by faith on Jesus Christ, that you and I would do well to live out, to believe and live out John chapter 17, what Jesus is praying for us here. And that that belief would stir those very, those three things in us. So these three statements, just for reiteration, but just to understand what the summation of chapter 20 is, or 17 is. Belief, that we would have a belief that results in a wholehearted fixation on the glory of Christ that is now ours. Now, I wanna underline that last part. I know you have glory underlined, but that is now ours is huge. Because there's always been a glory that Jesus has had. There's always been a unity that Jesus has experienced. There's always been a love that Jesus knows and displays, but that we didn't always have access to in the way that we do now through the finished work of Christ. But this glory is now ours through faith in Jesus. Same thing with unity. Belief that results in a wholehearted fixation on the unity of the Trinity that is now ours. That's something that we'll talk about. The profound nature of what we've been invited into in terms of unity. And then a belief that results in a wholehearted fixation on the love of God that is now ours. Let's talk about glory first. In this prayer that Jesus prays, he's gonna pray three things specifically about glory. Let me read the text first, and then I'll tell you what he prays about glory unity, and love. I read verses, we looked at verses one through five last week. This week, I'm not gonna read the whole chapter. Read it on your own. So much packed in there. This could be an entire sermon series just on this one chapter. But I'm gonna read verses nine through 11 and then 20 through 26. Here it is. I am praying for them. He's talking of of his disciples. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Let's skip down to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about us. All who will believe because of the ministry of the apostles. That they, may all, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even as you love me. Love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. 
So when, we, when it comes to glory, he pray, Jesus prayed three things about glory. First, that the glory of Christ would be manifested in us. In verse 10, he says this. He says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I mentioned last week that there's, there's this glory fest, if you will, that's going on among the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that they are sharing glory among one another, that the, the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father, and the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, who then glorifies the Father, and there's just this swapping back and forth of glory among the Godhead. And there's also this beautiful sharing that's going on in terms of authority, to where the Father is giving to the Son those whom have believed. And he says, you... Uh, all that are mine are yours, and all that are yours are mine, so we're sharing all this together. And by the way, those whom you have given me, Father, I am glorified in them. There's a manifestation of glory in the life of someone who follows Jesus that is profound, that at some level, if we stop and we let ourselves meditate on it, uh, there should be eventually um, some, some goosebumps that come up, uh, some level of, of mind-blowingness come up that the God of the universe would choose to display his glory through his people. And so that when you think about, when you're reading in like the book of Exodus and you see things like where it says, and the glory of God was, at, was on Mount Sinai, and that his glory was manifested in such a way that there were clouds and deep darkness and there were thunder, thundering and, cla and claps of lightning. And it was so terrifying that the people wouldn't even come near the mountain. That was the glory of God. And so if you told someone back then, hey, there's going to be a day where God does such a profound work of grace and, and, and finished work of glory within the life of someone who knows him and follows him, that that very glory will be manifested through his people. They would go, okay, yeah, sure. That's terrifying. Not, not. It's not terrifying if the glory of God has actually been made such that the wrath of God has been appeased. And we can draw near to the one, the glorious one, and receive in us all the blessings of adoption, of knowing him, being made in him into new creations. That Jesus could actually say, and I and glorified in them. Which means that if he's manifested his glory within the life of those who believe in Jesus, then that means he's given it to us. We've received it. It's a gift. The glory of Christ received. Verse uh, 22 of chapter 17 says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. I love this this quote from William Hendrickson, who's a great Bible commentator, he just says this, when believers are in Christ, then Christ is in them. This is their glory. He is our glory. So do you get, do you get what's happening here? All you have to do is look and examine your own heart and you see this, this, 
this constant desire for something significant and weighty that we would call glory. And you watch the world around us and you see this constant chasing after glory. And yet what God says to us is that everything that you long for in the way of glory has been provided for you and to you in Jesus. He is our glory. It reminds me of the, of the interview that I saw years ago of Tom Brady that many of you have seen, has been brought up in church a lot, but it's still so good to be reminded of uh, in, in a sense of what it reminds us of, of the truth. Tom Brady, I think this was right after his second Super Bowl ring. He's now won six, so this was a while back. And he basically said this in a 60-minute inter- 60 interview. He said, he said um, I've achieved everything that I ever wanted to achieve, every dream that I had growing up. I've accomplished it all. Subtext, I've achieved every glory that the world can throw at me. And then he says this. He says, and all I can think, this is a direct quote from the interview, all I can think is there has to be more. There must be more. And the guy on 60 Minutes who's interviewing him says, well, what do you think it is? And Tom Brady just kind of smiles and says, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. What is that? It's a chase after a glory that someone who's experienced, so very few of us who grow up for me, I grew up in the driveway in the front yard of my house dreaming to be Tom Brady. And Tom Brady gets to be Tom Brady. And then he says, but there's gotta be more. To which the rest of us go, you got it all. You got every glory this world can throw at you. And he says, there's gotta be more. What is he saying? He doesn't know it. And Lord, I pray, oh God, that he would change Tom Brady's heart to where he can see it. He'd say, there's only one glory. There's only one to where I can say, I've achieved it all or I haven't achieved it all. It doesn't matter because I've got the glory of Jesus in me and I am deeply and eternally satisfied. He is my glory. Christ is glorified in me. Then he says this, he prays towards the end of his prayer, he prays that there would be a glory beheld, glory of Christ beheld. Jesus says this in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is looking to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and he's saying, I'm giving them a glory now to be manifested in the hearts of believers now, but it's, a, uh, it's an in part glory. It's an already not yet glory. There's a day coming when Jesus will come again, when it will be a full glory that we experience in his presence as glorified people redeemed in his presence fully and completely. Jesus is looking to what only he knows at this point. He's saying, oh, that they would be with me. I talked about this last week. So much of what drives, so much of what drives us in this life is knowing the glory that's to come. We taste of it now. Sometimes the glory of Jesus is nothing more than just a, a little piece of steak that we touch with the tongues of faith. But one day we will eat in full. It's kind of like this table we're going to take. We taste of it. We're reminded of it. One day we'll sit at the banqueting table with the glorious one, fully, completely glorified in his presence. 
Oh, what a day that will be. And Jesus longs for that day. Oh, that they would see me in my glory for that is which, that's for which they were created. We were created for him, for his glory, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Not just in this life in part, but forever in full. The glory of Christ is the fuel of the Christian faith that we would stare at Jesus in all of his glory and be fueled to live the life that he's called us to live. Secondly, he prays for unity. He prays, first he talks about in verses 11 and 22, he prays about the unity that he has with the Father. That the Father and the Son have this profound unity with each other. Secondly, in verses 10, 21, 23, and 26, he prays, regarding the unity of the Father with the Son and with his followers. This is pretty amazing. This is pretty mind-blowing that he would say this, that he would say in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Okay, watch this next part. That they also may be in us. So there's this really amazing thing happening here where Jesus is... uh, talking with the Father and saying, hey, this unity that you and I have together, this this incredible unity that we have together, that I am in you and you are in me and everything that I have is yours and yours is mine, uh, let's invite them into it. These people that are as broken and depraved as they are, let's do a work that I'm about to do, Jesus, in real time on that Thursday night, Passover meal, Last Supper, where he's saying, in a few hours, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to accomplish something so amazing and so undeniably good and gracious that these people who don't deserve the grace of God, the presence of God, the reality of God, the glory of God, I'm going to actually bring this in in such a way to where this unity that we have together, Father, yeah, may they have it too with us. There's a, there's a great quote by Leslie Newbegin where he says this, he says, it is a unity which not merely reflects but actually participates in the unity of God. We're not just watching this unity, we've been brought into relationship with the God of creation to where we are participating with him in his his mysterious existence as one God and three persons, three gods, no, one God, existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfectly perfect unity that we are brought into to experience that unity with him. And so in light of that, what is the church to be? And this is where we get back to this unrealized potential. What is the church to be? If we are a people who are now uh, in union with God, that we are united to Christ, and we are one with him, then what are we to be as the church? Well, the third thing he prays about is that we as his followers would be united. He says that in verses 11 and then 21 through 23, that the unity that he has with the Father and that we have with the Father and the Son would actually be displayed through the church. That we as God's people would be unified. Now this is not just some trite unification. 
This is not just some, hey, let's be united around whatever we can think of. No, the unity is anchored in the person of Jesus. He is our unity. And we are united on the basis of the surety of the truth of God's word. So this is not unity at the expense of truth. This is not just, hey, let's have unity for the sake of unity. No, where is our unity centered? Well, it's centered on the person of Jesus and on the word of God, to where even though the world might be trying to define unity in many other ways, we would say, no, 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 here's unity. We are gonna stand on the truth of God's word. And even though we might get ridiculed or even persecuted, or as he promised in verses 1633, right before this chapter, that you will have tribulation, we're not gonna buckle, we're not gonna change on the truth that we stand on, but in that truth, there will be incredible, contagious unity to the world watching. To where we'll say, yes, of course, we're united on what the Bible teaches, and because this is what's being talked about right now, we're united on what God teaches about the ethic of, of sexuality, the biblical ethic of sexuality, of what God designed for marriage between a man and a woman and the design for male and female. We'll stand on that truth, but in that truth, there will be a contagious unity, not a self-righteous unity, not a condemning unity, not a nose up in the air unity, but a unity that can only come through Jesus being manifest in him on his truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so our anchor that we stand on is him, and in so doing, we display a unity to the world around us that's winsome. Why, am I making that up? No, look at what he says. What does he say that the purpose of our unity is? What will it accomplish in the world? He says it right here. Let me read verse 21 again. He says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they also may be in us, here's the reason, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why would we be, uh, what's the purpose of our unity? Is to display to the world the unity that we reflect in, in the Godhead in such a way to where the world would believe upon Jesus. In other words, our unity is our witness to a watching, non-believing world. Our unity is our witness. He says it again, just a few verses later in verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And he says it again, why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you love me. That the world would know that you love them because you love me and that the world would see the unity that we have together and we would display in the church a unity that is profound unimaginable unity. The church's unity is her witness. I think about this in light of the last 12 months. And listen, the way we display the unity of the church in Jesus Christ will always be broken. It will always be less than. It will never be perfect. It will always have cracks in it. Because until we're in glory with him, we are a people who are fighting the sin nature every day. And so this display of unity, this display of glory in the church will, will never be sufficiently what it could be and will be one day. But when I think back, back over the last 12 months and all that we've walked through, all that we've dealt with, not just in this church, but just as a people, alive in 2020 and 21, there's a lot that grieves me, naturally. But when I think about the church, 
specifically because I haven't been paying attention as much to the church throughout the world, but the church in America, perhaps what grieves me the most is one specific thing. I'll paint it for you like this. I have this image that pops into my head, this scenario that pops into my head that goes something like this. That 100 years from now, if, God, if Jesus hasn't come back in glory, that there'll be a seminary class. And the, the teacher in this class will be teaching the students. And this teacher will say, 100 years ago, in the year of 2020, and into 2021, there became this really interesting phenomenon within the church as a whole in America to where uh, people began to, in ways that were more than usual, began to leave churches just to go to another church. And it was just all this swapping going on that actually ended up bringing about a great deal of disunity within God's church. And then he poses the question to the students, what do you think it was? What drove that? What was the catalyst for the disunity? One student raises his hand, well, for something like that to happen, it must have been because of there was some great doctrinal error. There's something about the nature of Christ that was being taught that shouldn't have been taught. Or another teacher raises his hand and says, oh, there was some type of huge uh, debate or something, it had to be something doctrinal about the nature of salvation. Or another student raises their hand and says, well, maybe not that, but it's, it's yeah, absolutely has to be something fundamental to the faith. Uh, maybe it was about the Trinity and the nature of the Trinity. Maybe, maybe there was some great confusion going on in the church over uh, supremely important doctrinal issues in the church. And the teacher looks at the students and says, no, it was none of that. It's actually this. He says, are you serious? What is that? He says, a mask. That was the thing. That was all the enemy needed. A little piece of cloth on our face to bring disunity in the church. That was it. It was all the enemy needed. That's what's grieved me the most. A level at which we allow disunity to come among our midst when Jesus has prayed this for us. This is part of the reason. Now, listen, it's, mask is an illustration. There's so many other deeper things. But listen, it's part of what Jesus is saying. He says, oh God, would you do a work in them that would display the unity that we have to a world that is desperate for unity? Oh God, would you uh, do a work in them that would display the glory that you and I have that would now be manifested in them to a world that is desperate for glory? And then he prays, oh God, would you do a work in them that would display, that would, that would reflect the love that we have between one another as father and son, that would be manifested in them to display a love that the world desperately craves. This is the last thing he prays. He prays that in verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I love this quote from John Stott. It's a little lengthy, so bear with me, but I think it's worth the time. As he's talking about unity and love in the church, he says this. 
He says, we can apply this challenge to the local congregation. Here's where the world most immediately encounters the church. Their relationships are to be such that the watching world will come to recognize not only that Jesus is the true revelation of God, but also that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Our churches are to be love centers where relationships between members are a persuasive reflection of the mutually supportive, utterly loyal, and eternally accepting love of the Father and the Son. This is true whether the relationships are of men with women, young with mature, laity with clergy, new members with long-standing members, rich with poor, cultured with unsophisticated, socially upper with socially lower, leadership with membership, new converts with established Christians, racially other with racially traditional, and whatever other polarities the church embraces. That there would be a unity and a love on display through us that would bring great glory to God. Then John Stott says this, despite all the contrary indications, and there are many, the church is one, we are one. And we will be one in the glory of the consummation when Christ returns. This assurance does not absolve us from working for the expression of that unity in the present. We still fight for it every day. But it does deliver us from an unbelieving despair. And that's important. It doesn't absolve us from the work of unity, but it does deliver us from an unbelieving despair. Why? Because Jesus has prevailed. All Christians and all churches will one day love one another as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. We know the end of the story. And so between that day and now, we seek to be a people by the power of God in us who display the glory of God in us, the glory of Christ, the unity of the Godhead, the unity of the Trinity and the love of God. When we think about the table, all of that, everything that we've looked at in this passage, all of it is available to us because of one moment in history where God came in the flesh, the Son of God himself, and hung upon a tree, pouring out his blood as a sacrifice so that we, as undeserving as we are, that we would be brought near. And not just brought near, but that we would receive his glory. That we would receive the unity of the Trinity within the church. And that we would receive his love to be displayed for the world to see. That many would be brought in. It's interesting, this week, I've been in the latter part of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus, riveting, riveting stuff in Leviticus there. But it actually is really important. Here's why. One of the things that we begin to see is God has given instruction on how the tabernacle is to function, how it is to be built and how it is to function. One of the things that we see is that before Jesus came and gave his body as a ransom for many, it was incredibly uh, laborious, difficult, challenging, exhausting to come near to God. This morning we were down in the choir room back over here behind the stage and we were praying for the services 
And I just prompted all the people who would be on stage and serving behind the scenes this morning. I said, hey, why don't you take two or three minutes to just confess your sin to the Lord, anything this morning that might be hindering you from fellowship with the Lord. And after a couple of minutes of that, I said, okay, now, if you had been a follower of God most high, the, father, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here's what you would need to go do at this point. We would need to go get our pigeon. We need to go get our lamb. We need to go get our sheep, our bull, whatever it may be. And then we would bring it to the altar. And this place would not be a place of, of glorious worship. It would be a place reeking with death. Because the place of God, the house of God in that day was a place that in order to draw near to God, even at the smallest fraction, was that death had to occur. Why? Because God is holy. And in his holiness, he cannot let sin go unpunished. And so in order for his wrath to be thwarted, but only temporarily, sacrifice had to be made so that the people of God could draw near. But even then, it was very limited. Only one person, one time a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt, as it were, in the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant. But praise be to God, we don't have to do that. Do you understand the profound miracle that is before us right here? Represented right here before us. That because of the finished work of Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the one who came to give the once and for all sacrifice, to give us access to the throne of grace, not just minimally, not just temporarily, but once and for all, for all of eternity, full access into the presence of God to receive his glory, his unity, and his love, that we get to do that because Jesus finished the work. And it's not an exhausting process now to appease God. It's a finished process to where we, to where we uh, dine with God. We are in his presence through the finished work of Jesus. This table gives us full access. Not the table itself, but what it represents. What Jesus did on the cross. The glory of God is most fully on display in the cross of Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you that you came to pour out on us immense, unthinkable blessings that come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even now, Lord, as we, as we prepare our hearts to take the table, would you meet with us in significant ways? Holy Spirit, would you come? Teach us, admonish us, encourage us, strengthen us, nourish us as we remember the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.